Thanks for tuning in. I'm Scott Walter. And I'm Michael Watson. Uh, in this episode, we look behind the curtain of the nation's most prominent pro-abortion advocacy group, Planned Parenthood, as the Trump administration cuts off a major source of federal funding to it. This is the Influence Watch podcast. Last week, the Trump administration announced that it would cut off funding to Planned Parenthood, the nation's largest network of, abor of abortion providers under the federal reproductive health program known as Title X. The administration's policy change is based on an effort that was attempted in the late Reagan administration and then reversed by President Bill Clinton. The change would require recipients of Title X family planning funds not to share resources with or make direct referrals to abortionists. This move puts the funding that Planned Parenthood-affiliated clinics receive through Title X in jeopardy. The rule would not end all federal funding to Planned Parenthood. By one estimate, if all Title X funds to the network were cut off, Planned Parenthood's federal funding would only fall by 13%. Naturally, the left has responded with outrage in defense of one of its largest financial and ideological supporters. But the outraged and factually challenged response serves to underline just how misleading is Planned Parenthood's claim that only 3% of its activities are abortions. In fact, abortion is central to the organization's mission and has been since the organization's founding. Uh, now, Mike, let's start here with uh, just what the Trump administration is attempting to do. So a 1970 law uh, known as Title X, Title X of the Public Health Service Act, uh, authorizes the federal government to make grants to organizations that provide reproductive health services, things like birth control, uh, uh, birth control most prominently, to, uh, to organizations that provide those services to low-income individuals. Uh, as part of the deal, now, now this was kind of passed, and we'll get a little bit later in the podcast, we'll discuss kind of in the 50s through the 70s, the big surge in interest in population control. Uh, but pursuant to the compromises around uh, around that law, uh, a provision is included in Title X that says none of the funds appropriated under this title shall be used in programs where abortion is a method of family planning. There are two massive buts that come from the way that that law has been interpreted, the way that, that none of the funds writer has been interpreted over the past 40 years. Uh, if, you're, if an organization such as a Planned Parenthood clinic uh, performs abortions, it can still receive Title X funds for non-abortion-related activities. Of course, that creates another but, which is that if you get a government dollar for a non-abortion service, that can free up a private dollar to provide abortions. Yes, the classic principle that money is fungible and uh, if I need a million dollars and you give me 500000 that's helping with the other 500000 So um, uh, it was back in the 80s then that the Reagan administration first started working on the kind of regulation that's now being revived currently. Is that right? Yeah. So 1988, the second to last uh, or the last year of the Reagan administration, they push out a proposed rule 
which would require <clears throat> Title X clinics to be, quote, physically and financially separate from abortion clinics and also forbid them from, quote, counseling concerning the use of abortion as a method of family planning or to provide referral for abortion. Uh, needless to say, the, uh, the left and pro-abortion rights people sued immediately. Uh, the Reagan administration, or now the George H.W. Bush administration, which continued to defend the regulations, actually won. Uh, the Supreme Court ruled that, yes, this, this writer was constitutional, or this regulation was constitutional. Uh, of course, by the time they won, they had already lost the 1992 general election. Bill Clinton was coming into office, and on, apparently, according to Yuval Levin's write-up on this uh, at National Review, in the first week of the Clinton administration, the rule was repealed. Yeah, I think that's worth pointing out. Why was it in the first week that things like this were repealed? And that is because Planned Parenthood is a massively powerful influence in Washington, D.C., and its priorities were among the very highest priorities of any incoming Democratic administration. And the same thing happened with uh, Barack Obama after George W. Bush uh, uh, had th th there are a number of things like this that are handled by executive action, yes. uh, regulations <clears throat> like this uh, for funding and the rest. And uh, it is a very high priority uh, for Democrats the second that they have the pen in the Oval Office. Right. Now, it, as soon uh, this, a similar thing happens with the Mexico City policy, uh, which is a, a rule that the Republican administrations, uh, including the Trump administration, in their kind of one of their first executive actions is to put a restriction on funding of abortions overseas. And one of the first actions of an incoming Democratic administration is that that then gets repealed. To flip that, yes. Yes, it's a, it's a, the, the whole abortion issue is a very powerful, has great valence. It is very powerful and very partisan, yep. with, a, with a, an exception that we'll get to later in this podcast. Yep. Well, now, so that's what uh, happened with Reagan and then George H.W. Bush and then Bill Clinton. Um, now, the Trump administration is doing something similar, but not precisely the same thing. Is that correct? Right. So, and again, I'm going off uh, Yuval, Yuval Levin's uh, write-up on the, on the proposal at National Review. Uh, Levin worked in the George W. Bush administration. Yeah, they I should, uh, full disclosure... <laughs> on the Domestic Policy Council, uh, overlapping with me when I was at the Domestic Policy Council. Yeah. Uh, so the George W. Bush administration considered reinstituting the Reagan-era regulation. They decided not to. Uh, towards the very end of the Bush administration, they came up with an idea that they could reissue the Reagan-era rule with one revision, is that Although ref direct referrals for abortion would still be prohibited to federal funders recipients, counseling that involved offering uh, women the option of abortion would still be allowed. This to take away the the claim that it's a gag rule. Uh, so what the Trump administration has done is they have adopted that version of the rule, uh, and they have begun. The, the rulemaking process, the administrative procedure process is very long and complicated. Uh, it is now the, the first phase of draft proposals, uh, and apparently the, te the text of the regulation was released yesterday as we speak, so that would be Wednesday the 23rd. Um, it has not yet gone into effect, but it is now undergoing the uh, notice and comment procedures and the promulgation and the interagency 
discussion in, interagency yes. consult. Yes. No, it, it's it, all people should realize that you know regulations in DC. It's not you write a text and then wham, that's the regulation. It goes through multiple stages. It's there's a great deal of arbitrariness about how long the stages are and. And there's lots of behind the scenes pushing from interest groups and political parties and powerful members of Congress and uh, often within an administration. There, right? Are you have you have different you have different factions in the you have different factions in the administration. You have changing you know as the political environment changes. Uh, Levin, uh, in his discussion of why it didn't get moved in the Bush administration, uh, said that. You know, there were there was concern because it was they were discussing it at the same time that they were also going to veto the federal funding of embryonic stem cell research, which was highly controversial at the time. Um, so as all these things come come together, things things change. But this is the at the first stage of promulgation where they are. Yeah. So. Now, we discussed, on the one hand, what the Trump administration is doing. Now, let's flip to the other actor in this, which is Planned Parenthood itself. Um, why don't you start by explaining to us uh, a bit about the way Planned Parenthood is structured, because just as the regulatory process is complica complicated and complex, so is, quote-unquote, Planned Parenthood, which is not right, one Right, which entity. is not one a yeah, it... I'm a labor guy, so I like to analogize it to labor unions. Uh, you know, when you have the National Labor Union, it has a bunch of state councils that do mostly advocacy, and then it has local labor unions that actually negotiate contracts and represent, represent employees. Planned Parenthood's kind of similar. Uh, there's a national central organization, the Planned Parenthood Federation of America, that's kind of the head of the, uh, the, head of the, of the entity, the head of Planned Parenthood. And then... A number of state councils and regional advocacy organizations, and then the local Planned Parenthood abortion and birth control clinic. Uh, a lot of the local clinics are part of uh, an independent 501c organization. Uh, they are not directly operated by the Federation of America. Um, in addition to that sort of structure, there's also the Planned Parenthood Federation of America has a national 501c4 social welfare advocacy lobbying organization, Planned Parenthood Action Fund. There's a national 527 PAC, uh, which can give directly to candidates Planned Parenthood votes. And then at all the state levels, for all the state, uh, for state level officials, there's Planned Parenthood votes, name of state. Yeah, California, uh, Cal Texas, California, Texas, Connecticut, New York, yeah. all of them. An, an easy uh, way to explain some of this is to say that uh, on our website, influencewatch.org, uh, if you type in Planned Parenthood, you turn up dozens of entries, and we and I have to admit, yeah, we the, don't, the, we're the, not completely exhaustive <clears throat> with yeah, every we, single last one. Right. No, just, just the partial selection that we have compiled since we launched the website is is easily over a dozen. And that is but a small sliver of the number of entities directly tied to the Planned Parenthood network. Yes. And the uh, and as you said, it works its way all the way down to local particular clinics. Um, and those uh, clinics themselves will often get these Title X funds that are at issue and being fought about right now. Um, but is that the only way that they get federal funding? It's not even the majority. Uh, the ma 
<clears throat> most of the federal funding that ends up in the hands of the Planned Parenthood network comes through Medicaid reimbursement for services. Uh, so when uh, there have been proposals to defund, you know, to defund the Planned Parenthood network, take away, you know, remove all federal funding, uh, and also at the state level to close off uh, Planned Parenthood clinics to Medicaid to, to Medicaid. Uh, yeah, because the states play right, a role right, because in the states because the states also pay a portion of the of the of the Medicaid coverage of the Medicaid expenditure. Uh, the The Obama administration absolutely came down hard that that could not be done. The Trump administration is more, more lenient, although there are, it's all in litigation, of course, because everything involving everything involving abortion gets litigated. Yes. Um, the. But that, yeah, uh, the majority uh, comes through medi- comes through Medicaid reimbursements, and what uh, those who wanted to take federal funding away from Planned Parenthood basically want to do is say, kind of like how you with your insurance with a regular health insurance provider, there are in network and out of network, and out of network you pay out of pocket, and in network you get you get subsidized by your insurance company. Uh, that Planned Parenthood would become out of network, uh, as opposed to in network, which it is in. Yeah. In most cases now. And so the plan, so speaking of, of uh, health care and reimbursements and the, re- and the like, uh, Obamacare also is a source of some funds yeah. uh, for, those, uh, for those Planned Parenthood affiliated clinics th- throughout the country. Um, well, the, uh, uh, you mentioned all of the C4s, uh, which get to do a lot of advocacy, and then outside spending in elections with that and 527s and PACs and, and the rest that are all part of the Planned Parenthood network. Um, how many zeros are we talking about in terms of Planned Parenthood's uh, influence in elections and funding uh, of candidacies? Uh, many, many zeros. Uh, the, to, to get an idea of, of just a vague idea of the scale of, of influence that Planned Parenthood C4 has. In 2014, in the midterm elections, the American Federation of State, Count, State County and Municipal Employees Labor Union wrote them a check for 400 grand. Uh, that will, you know, you know, so you're talking in the, in the millions, if not the tens of millions, in terms of advocacy spending, in terms of independent expenditures on behalf of candidates, uh, in terms of general advocacy. Yeah, so this is uh, another, now you use the analogy of labor unions, but perhaps another analogy could be the National Rifle Association in the sense of, okay, so here is a, uh, an interest group that has a, a lot a, of people who care about what they're advocating over and has millions of dollars. I am, I, I, I am a, I, I, I am, I have used in discussions uh, the analogy of the NRA and the gun issue when discussing the, the reverse case of Planned Parenthood and abortion. Uh, you know, in both cases, you have a what the Supreme Court has declared a right, whether or not you agree with it. You have a very large interest group, a very well-connected interest group that is ostensibly singly involved in that issue, in recent years, both Planned Parenthood and the NRA have moved out of single issue, out of single issue politics, and into broader culture war politics. As the uh, the sort of rural conservative faction of the Democratic Party has fallen away, and the urban moderate liberal faction of the Republican Party has fallen away, 
with some exceptions we'll get to, um, some very relevant exceptions that we'll get to. Um, but the in, you know in both cases you have this contested you have this contested right this very powerful interest group that basically can push its its partisan faction to do what it wants with with you know in the in Planned Parenthood's case there's more money than in the NRA's case but in both cases the real issue is both can rally a large number of supporters and who are committed to their single issue. Now, yes, I was going to say with the big difference between the two that the NRA gets very harsh media coverage from the mainstream media and Planned Parenthood gets very nice coverage and Planned Parenthood gets millions of our tax dollars and the NRA does not. Well, the, I mean, the NRA does get a does get some local government funding because they provide uh, they do provide some training to local police officers. So yes, there, is, there is that's there true. is. A trivial, you know, a relative now relative to their budget, it's probably trivial compared to yeah. the compared to what it is with Planned Parenthood. Yeah. But there, there even is a any a um, a government funding angle there. But but no, but the the government funding of Planned Parenthood, I suspect, and the federal funding certainly of Planned Parenthood, I suspect, is much higher. Yeah. Plus, I would just th- uh, I think it's worth throwing out that um, on the left, uh, it is by no means Planned Parenthood. That is the only entity that that uh, leverages uh, the abortion issue, which is oh, yeah. passionate for the core support that the, the the base of the Democratic Party uh, cares a lot about this. And I know this because, uh, of course, I get lots of left wing email. You know, I, I monitor lots of left wing email lists. And uh, Tom Steyer, whom we've covered in past episodes, the arch the arch environmentalist billionaire. Yes, yes, the 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 largest single donor to political campaigns of anybody in America for the in last twenty sixteen. Years. Yes, he was, mm-hmm. and uh, in twenty fourteen as well, I believe. Oh, uh, um, yeah, no, I think I think uh, you may be right. Yes, and um, you know his great passion is environmentalism, and yet uh, a great number of the emails that he sends he sends <laughs> me uh, to get me to try to donate money or uh, or organize and uh, advocate for causes and candidates, a shocking number of those involve uh, the abortion issue, not invite. In fact, for, for a long time, I it, it, w- it would be months and months and months before there would be any mention of any environmental <laughs> issue whatsoever, because they're not nearly as powerfully motivating as, as the abortion issue. Well, let's, uh, let's now go back in time a bit um, to understand about the other people funding uh, the abortion movement over time. Uh, right now, there's a controversy over the federal funding, but federal funds are by no means the only money flowing into this. Effort. Right, right, into, into this uh, and, and into uh, Planned Parenthood as a as a federation of entities. Um, the if you go all the way back to the founding, all the way back to the beginning, uh, you obviously find the extremely controversial figure of Margaret Sanger, uh, the founder of what I think was at the time called the American Birth Control League. Was that the original I think name of Planned Parenthood? In the 20s, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, and, of course, back during the 20s, the hot new intellectual trend was eugenics. Uh, and uh, Sanger was, you know, Sanger was openly for it. Uh, there is some question as to whether she was a eugenicist because she hated uh, non-white Anglo-Saxon Protestant ethnicities or because she just hated the poor. Um, but whichever way you fall <laughs> in, that, in that discussion, uh, she was... Um, she was a very, you know, an, an advocate for uh, human artificial selection. Yes, and, uh, and it's, it's worth pointing out that that 
a lot of what are what remain some of the largest foundations and most influential foundations in America, such as Carnegie and Rockefeller, uh, they were great boosters of her and of the entire eugenics movement. Carnegie was, uh, and not just in America, but also yeah, but in also Germany abroad. Yeah. in the 1920s and 1930s, Rockefeller Foundation, uh, sorry, Carnegie Foundation, I believe, funded German eugenicists all the way through 1939. So at a very, very creepy uh, yeah, not and, a, and very not a, rarely discussed. Not a not a very not a very good time to be funding anything involving that sort of stuff in Germany, given what was going on that we later discovered. Yes, all, and, um, and in fairness, <laughs> to be fair to the to the Germans, it was it really was American donors and American thinkers, like some of the people who were on Ms. Sanger's organizations at the time. Um, they actually pioneered the theories that fine folks like that, yeah, that were that were later that were later that like, were later taken up by yes, by Hitler people and the rest. people who would later face judgment for crimes against humanity. <laughs> yes, no, the, 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 the grim truth is that you had uh, rich Americans funding very bad thinkers who influenced folks. Uh, who, who, in Germany who, who took over a country and did very bad things. Yes. Oh, and although to be let, let's be fair to to the other way to be fair to Germany is to is to blame America because there one practical effect of this one influence that was felt of this was that there were state sterilization laws uh, in America and the last Infamy. of those state sterilization laws were not taken off the books until well into the 1970s. Uh, now they weren't particularly used much. Supreme Court, Supreme Court infamously infamously ruling three generations of imbeciles is enough. <laughs> yes, that was Buck v. Bell, the famous case Buck v. Bell. But the uh, I believe it was North Carolina was the very was, last to take it off. Yeah, the books I, I don't know who's in who's, the I'm Pretty sure Buck v. Bell was Virginia. Yeah, no, that um, yeah, it was it was Virginia, but the but. Uh, and 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 it, and it is it is not coincidental that these states that we're discussing are all in the south. Yes. Oh, it's it's also because you made the point. It's un, it's genuinely unclear. Now, on the one hand, Sanger did not uh, have a fond affection for for poor mm. blacks in America. She famously, in her memoirs, people try to dispute this, but in her own memoir, which is available completely online, you know, the complete autobiography is available online. You can read her discussion of a speech that she gave to the Ku Klux Klan. Technically, it was the women's auxiliary, but anyway, because they wouldn't be talking about birth control <laughs> in a mixed audience at that time. But she gave a speech to a women's auxiliary of the Ku Klux Klan, and according to her, was very well received. And they inv they said, you know, you need to be giving lots more of these speeches to other to uh, to other uh, Klan meetings. So there's no doubt that that. Uh, poor blacks had reason to be concerned about Miss Sanger and her work, although I tend to lean, yes, in the direction that she wasn't especially focused on poor blacks. She didn't like poor Irish or poor other... Poor Italians, poor, poor Jews. Poor, yeah, <laughs> big families. Um, she came yeah. from a big family herself and apparently was not happy in it. But uh, and, and and of course and of course the depressing thing you know we we've, we've now gone on about Sanger for five minutes but the depressing thing is that her legacy remains with us and it remains with us even in places where you wouldn't expect to see it uh, you might if those those who you know routinely watch the podcast may remember our live our our, our show from CPAC where we we spoke with a woman uh, who was bringing up the uh, sort of abortion funding of the anti-immigration movements uh, and. Pro-abortion, yeah, yeah, pro-abortion yeah. pro funders of of the of single-issue anti-immigration groups, and uh, the 
you know, I, I said, you know, yes, I know exactly what you're talking about, but I forgot the names. I have the names. Um, it is the Colcom Foundation in Pittsburgh, which a couple years back gave a several hundred, gave a six-figure contribution to the local Planned Parenthood in Pittsburgh, is the single largest funder of all the single-issue immigration restriction groups. Uh, you want to read up more on this, uh, go to capitalresearch.org and look up Of Border Walls and Dreamers, a four-part serialized long discussion of the immigration issue written by me. Um, and they also have funded the Margaret Sanger Papers Project right. at New York University. Right. Uh, but let to, to get to back to our Planned Parenthood friends, it is also worth noting that to this day, Planned Parenthood awards a Margaret Sanger mm -hmm. Award, and one of the recent awardees just a few years ago was Hillary Clinton. Uh, the other, the other thing about other funders of Planned Parenthood that, we, that I want to throw in, too, speaking of Hillary Clinton and Planned Parenthood, uh, Harvey Weinstein, the notorious Hollywood producer who helped to launch the Me Too movement inadvertently. Yeah, uh, his, his, his offenses launched the Me Too yes, movement. Exactly. Excuse me, his alleged offenses. Yes. <laughs> and the, um, he famously, just a year or two ago, attended uh, a big Planned Parenthood fundraiser because Hollywood loves Planned Parenthood and funds it massively. And the, the, at his table was, uh, was Hillary Clinton and her close aide Huma Abedin. And Hillary actually was the main speaker, I believe, for the event. And uh, Weinstein, with great virtue signaling, repeatedly <laughs> jumped up, <laughs> clapping wildly and swearing quite, <laughs> so that it would be picked up in lots of uh, newspaper yeah, reports lots of, lots, time, of, lots of glossy magazines. Uh, promising a $100,000 donation to Planned Parenthood, although, ironically, it turns out that... Yeah, he, once, it, once it turned out that he was a bad dude, uh, Planned Parenthood insisted they never received the money. <laughs> yes, which, to be fair, maybe he really <laughs> did. Maybe may true. Um, but... Uh, uh, well, let's go. Let's. I didn't quite let you finish the other funders of. Um, uh, we originally. Yeah, yeah. We're yeah, we, we're we're going through the history. So, so initially comes out of the eugenics movement. We later discover uh, at the end of World War II that that leads down a very bad road that is bad and evil. Uh, so we. So they. Uh, the funders of the. Uh, abortion and birth control movement, and of which Planned Parenthood was one, you know, the or the organizations that would become Planned Parenthood were core uh, core leadership of. Uh, the foundation funders moved towards concern about s overpopulation. Uh, now, what is it? Where do you draw the line between overpopulation and eugenics? Well, it's blurry. <laughs> uh, the when the Rockefeller family, uh, John Rockefeller the third and the Rockefeller Family Foundations. Now, again, I, you'll, and some of this we've, you know, we've discussed, you know, that was a 1970 law, which means it was signed by Richard Nixon. Well, the Nixon-Rockefeller wing of the Republicans were kind of all involved in this. It wasn't, you know, it, uh, this was, a, this was a, uh, a, a sort of a bipartisan, it was a bipartisan offense, if you will. Yeah, and um, it was nineteen the mid nineteen sixties that talk about the population bomb of overpopulation. Yeah, yeah. Was, I think was, Paul Ehrlich's book, Paul Ehrlich's book, The Population Bomb, comes out in sixty eight. Mm. I think it was a little earlier. Than that, six, but it was either six. I think it was either sixty somewhere or in the mid mid mid, mid late sixties. Mm -hmm. um, so the the uh, John Rockefeller the uh, third, the Ford Foundation, a number of prominent eugenicists, and the then president of Planned Parenthood got together and founded the Population Council, which is a big, again, also largely federally funded. Um, 
in 2015, it reported $43 million in federally funded revenue. Uh, mm-hmm. And among the things that Population Council has done, uh, the first intrauterine devices, which were uh, medically problematic, uh, it tested them mostly abroad. And then... Just all, to say on, on poor people. Just to say on poor abroad. People. Um, and also developed the chemical abortion pill and... And the RU486, uh, yeah, RU486 press stone or whatever, uh, the, the chemical abortion pill and shepherded it through the FDA approval process during the Clinton administration. Yep. Now, there was another speak. You, you talked about the, the wings uh, of the, as the parties polarized, mm-hmm. wings falling off. So the the rurals, uh, conservative white folks uh, dropping off from the Democratic Party, but then also the liberal uh, yeah, well, the, the wealthy liberal, the, well, the wealthy, wealthy waspy liberal, uh, the the Rockefeller, you know, the Nelson Rockefeller, a former go- longtime governor of New York. Uh, this the, is true even out as far as Nebraska. Though, I <laughs> is where I'm trying yes, to leave. Yes, uh, because one of those population control interested former Republicans was a gentleman by the name of Warren Buffett uh, and his. Uh, and late wife. and and his and his late wife uh, now. Before he married, uh, Buffett went so far as he and his, one of his business partners formed a back in the before Roe v. Wade legalizes abortion essentially on demand nationwide. In seventy three. In nineteen seventy three, uh, the what people who wanted to facilitate abortions did was they formed these straw church churches uh, that would help people who were seeking abortions cross state lines and go to a state that allowed. You know, from a state that forbid abortion to a state that allowed it. Uh, so Buffett, Buffett did that, and then later on in his life, uh, in association with his late wife uh, Susan Thompson Buffett, uh, they formed a they formed a foundation. Now the Susan Thompson Buffett Foundation, named after named after her, and the Susan Thompson Buffett Foundation is believe you know is. Philanthropy observers believe it is the single largest funder uh, in the private sector of population control, abortion, birth control, uh, and similar, uh, you know, uh, similar reproductive, uh, reproductive things. Uh, just from in the decade from 2001, a uh, little bit more than a decade from 2001 to 2012, uh, the Media Research Center, which is a conservative uh, advocacy group. Calculated that S, the Susan Thompson Buffett Foundation made 1.2 billion, with a B, dollars in contributions to pro-abortion, pro-abortion groups, abortion provision groups, advocacy groups advocating for abortion rights. Uh, the largest recipient was the Planned Parenthood Network, which received 289 million. Uh, they have continued it in 2014. Uh, 2014 alone. Uh, STBF, Susan Thompson Buffett Foundation, made $40 million in contributions to Planned Parenthood Federation of America, just the big top of the uh, top of the pyramid, uh, and then an additional $7 million to the advocacy wing, the Planned Parenthood Action Fund. Yes, and that's, uh, and while that was the most important foundation funder uh, in this area, it's by no means the only one because you also had uh, funders who tend to have strong environmentalist leanings like the Hewlett Foundation, uh, the Packard Foundation, the Open Society Foundations controlled by George Soros, uh, United Nations Foundations, uh, and also a number of corporations. Um, 
and uh, unions as well, correct? Do we have unions? In, yeah, in, re in recent years, the, the unions have started to really fund heavily the advocacy work being done by Planned Parenthood. Uh, again, I mentioned in 2014, the AFSCME. Uh, which is uh, one of the largest government worker unions. Yeah, which is, which is the, the largest government worker union that isn't a teacher's union. Well, the second largest teacher's union in 2017 wrote a $350,000 check to Planned Parenthood votes. They're 527 polit purely partisan political arm. Yep. And the there's as to me there's an irony here because of course uh, well first of all the, the first thing to say is that the unions are doing that for the same reason Tom Steyer the environmentalist is doing that namely um, you can motivate a lot of voters to vote left and uh, for bigger government and more government workers right. uh, by stirring up the abortion right it's it's a nest. it's a again same same analog to the gun issue the, the same way that you know Republicans and conservatives can be riled up by the fear that the government's going to come take their guns. Uh, lefts and left liberals can be riled up by the mere possibility that their ability that their ability to access abortion on demand will be trivially restricted. Yes. Well, so the the other thing, though, I would point out is to me the great great irony here is um, all those groups on the left love to talk about how much they care about the little guy and. Uh, the the evil big corporations are going to crush little folk, and 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 we're 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 standing up for advocating for the voice of the little folk. And yet, in two ways here, it seems that's not the case. One is eugenicists and overpopulation people uh, take as their enemy precisely the poor little guy. Uh, that is not remotely who Margaret Sanger was standing up for, um, nor the people who who now uh, give and receive Sanger awards. But then, uh, even beyond that. Uh, again, the, the population scare and the, we're going to have the population bomb is going to go off because, you know, population expands geometrically. Uh, so you're going to have this terrible problem. Yeah, the latest census figures suggest that may not be the case. <laughs> yeah, so now you have, there are not many countries in the world that are beating the mere replacement level. Right. The, uh, the birth rate of 2.1. Yeah, uh, and the, and the, the, the U.S. in the last year, the latest census figures came out, I think, last week. Uh, 1.74, which is, if not an all-time low, very close. And, of course, uh -huh. that geometric progression works in both directions. So, yes, if you have a high birth rate, you have geometric expansion of a population. But if you have well below the replacement rate, which pretty much every advanced country in the world well, and even, does. And even some, that, even some that are somewhat less advanced. Uh, the People's Republic of China infamously had the authoritarian one-child policy for years and years. And now they're thinking of getting rid of their two-child policy because they're getting old before they get rich. Well, that's that's and what I was going to say. <laughs> this is the other you know, way. Bill, Bill, you know, uh, environment, the arch environmentalist Bill McKibben proposed that the proposed many years ago. I think it was 1998 that the uh, that the U.S. might consider adopting a one-child policy. As it turns out, we have voluntarily we, we, we have we have voluntarily reduced our fertility to such a degree that it is potentially a social problem. Because well, that's what I was going to say. So you have the same kind of geometric progression in the collapsing population, and the problem is, uh, what is it that the left and government worker unions and the rest like? They love a big fat welfare state, but the but. To a considerable degree, welfare state operates as a Ponzi scheme. Certainly, our Social Security system works precisely as a Ponzi scheme, where you have to constantly be adding new suckers into the scam, or it collapses. 
because you need more and more people to support the ever-growing numbers of people and for, and, on and, the welfare. And, you know, in addition to the, the green eye shade stuff, you know, if you want to see the future of our social development, if we continue to have exceptionally low fertility, look at Japan, uh, where they are, you know, there are stories coming out, you know, there, I remember reading, I, I forget, uh, I, I forget which newspaper it was in, uh, but a, a woman, you know, was crying, you know, she had, her, her husband has passed, you know, her husband passed away, her, her daughter passed away young, so she is now not only widowed, but also the end of the line, uh, chronicling the last years of her life in what was originally one of these 1960s, you know, Japan has come out of the, you know, it's come out of the war, it's undergoing its economic miracle, these apartment blocks were the, uh, you know, where the new Japan was going to be made, the new, cap, you know, capitalist, free and democratic Japan was going to be made, uh, and where it was made. But now they are becoming places of despair because the only people left are old age pension, are old age pensioners. There, where is you know the next generation that is going to tend to the that is going? I mean, the the woman was obsessed with who is going to tend. You know, no one is going to tend to my grave. No one is going to tend to the grave of myself, my my husband, my late husband, and my late daughter. And that, you know, I in, you know, in last in yesterday's New York Times, there was a piece. You know, does this collapse in 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 birth? Does it provoke the pessimism that leads to the fairly nasty strains of populism that have emerged in Europe and the United States over the past four or five years? Uh, I, I think there's an argument to be made for that, and. You know the fact that you know the, the fact that our government is still concerned with population control at all is uh, perhaps a case of very destructively fighting the last war. <laughs> yes, well, Th- Thomas Sowell uh, makes the point that n- nearly any social problem is usually taken up by politicians only after long after it actually uh, has been ameliorated. But well, to get back to the to the controversy we started out with, where Planned Parenthood versus the Trump administration on this proposed regulation that's not yet in effect, um, uh, likely this re- regulation is in fact going to uh, go through the process, be promulgated. What is the next likely step after that? The next likely step is that Planned Parenthood will sue. Uh, they they will sue. They will claim their all their all their amendments rights are being violated. Uh, if the, there is not a change of government that causes the either the judiciary to be changed or the uh, advocate, you know, the advocacy and litigation priorities of the federal government to be changed. Uh, it's likely that it will go to the Supreme Court, and it is likely. I mean, one presumes, given that the Reagan regulations actually went further, uh, was upheld by a Supreme Court that was probably more liberal. Uh, you know, it's, they got it, the Trump administration has a reasonable expectation they would win. Um, now, the regulation would, of course, be repealed on the first day of the next Democratic administration, whenever that is. But the, you know, the Trump administration would have a reasonable expectation, if they were still in office, that they would win. Yes. And is this something that if Congress were to flip in the midterm election, as some people think it may, uh, would that affect it? Uh, this narrow regulation, probably not, because there, there will not be, you know, presumably if Congress were fully controlled by, now here, here's, here's where Congress gets interesting. Since the special election in Alabama last year, uh, when the Republicans nominated an exceptionally problematic candidate, uh, and then lost a relatively safe 
uh, Republican seat to a Democrat. Uh, the balance of power in the Senate has actually been with two pro-choice Republicans, the, the last two <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. pro-choice Republicans in Congress, two of the last pro-choice Republicans in Congress. Uh, so the the pro, you know, the, the sort of campaign promise that the Republicans have made that we're going to cut off all federal funding to Planned Parenthood is now out of the question for uh, unless the midterms go not the way that most pundits project that they will and the Republicans actually make advances um, because, the ba- because the balance of power in the Senate is held by, uh, by two Republicans who are socially liberal and have said that they do not want to cut off federal funding to Planned Parenthood. Uh, the last survivors of Nelson Rockefeller's party. <laughs> yep. Um, the, however, the even if the Democrats took control of both houses, you know, took control of the House, and there was a fund Planned Parenthood majority, whether that was a Democratic control or like it is now, where there's forty, you know, forty nine Republicans presumably who would be opposed, forty nine Democrats who would presumably be in favor, and then two Republicans in favor who tipped the majority. Uh, it's still not like, you know, it still wouldn't, the ability to overturn the regulation probably still wouldn't, still wouldn't be. And it's unlike, and because presumably the Trump, you know, even if they did a Congressional Review Act, which would allow it to get through the House, you know, through a Democratic controlled House or a Planned Parenthood controlled House, uh, and through a Democratic or Planned Parenthood majority Senate, uh, it would still be vetoed. Well, uh, speaking of, of presidential veto, the, the president has actually been somewhat ingenious uh, in his response to Planned Parenthood's complaints about the, uh, this Title X funding to them being cut. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not usually the biggest fan of President Trump or Trump's family, but they've actually been quite clever with us. Uh, in a meeting in early 2017, uh, uh, Ivanka Trump, the president's daughter, who is also a White House aide, that creates a whole box of problems that I'm going to lay over here for the moment. Uh, went to went to Cecil Richards, then the then the president of Planned Parenthood. She stepped down as of a couple weeks ago. But she does have a very extensive entry in InfluenceWatch.org. A very extensive in, entry in InfluenceWatch.org on her many connections to many, many, many organizations. Yes. And uh, to, be, to, to give her uh, whatever credit is due for this, uh, under her uh, rule at Planned Parenthood, she created a fair number of those uh, advocacy and lobbying groups that we discussed earlier. Which I'm sure has nothing to do with the fact that she is the daughter of the most recent Democratic governor of Texas. Yes, Ann uh, and, and Yeah, Ann Richards, defeated by George W. Bush uh, in 1994, and we never heard from him again. Um, the, uh, but what, uh, what Ivanka Trump uh, came, to, came to Planned Parenthood and said, okay, you guys want to keep your federal funding. We, you know, our supporters want it to go, you know, want it to go away. Why don't you just spin off your abortion business? Spin, you know, separate, you know, it's three, you know, if you, if you guys are, if you guys are telling, if you guys are telling the truth, Mm -hmm. it's 3% of your, of your, I forget, I forget, I forget how they, how they measure it. 3% of your procedures, 3% of your total business, whatever. Um, You know, spin it off, form a new, you know, you formed so many entities, you know, just spin it off. Uh, we'll keep fun, you know, we'll keep the funding flow to your, you know, your birth control, basically your birth control business. Uh, and you know, the abortion stuff can just be separated over in its own garden and Planned Parenthood refused, uh, militantly refused. And in fact, according to the, according to the New York times write up on, on Ms. Trump's offer, 
uh, Planned Parenthood rejected it because of how central reproductive choice, which I'm sure is not a euphemism for abortion, is to, was to the group's mission. Yes, so... <laughs> So, yes, we see what really matters there. But the one thing that's guaranteed is whatever happens with the regulation currently being fought over, uh, the larger fight on reproductive choice, as some people like to put it, uh, will continue to be a very it prominent part will, of our politics. It will, it will, continue, it will continue forever. <laughs> yes. Well, that's our show for this week. If you're listening to this on iTunes or Stitcher, uh, please know that we broadcast a live video version of this podcast at 10 a.m. on Thursdays. Uh, you can catch it on Facebook Live or YouTube, and you can find our pages by searching Capital Research Center. If you're watching the video version, we encourage you to subscribe to the audio on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next week.